This is David Haber, co-founder and CEO of Bond Street, and you're listening to The Nitty Gritty. This is my chance to connect with fellow founders and unpack the entrepreneurial experience, to learn about the moments that shape their careers, the unexpected challenges, and their sources of inspiration. Yeah, first of all, thank you so much for stopping yeah, by. We're really excited welcome. to have you on the Thanks podcast. You know, I think really how we, we approach this is we try our best to get into some of the nitty-gritty details. You know, what Bond Street does is we lend money to small businesses. Uh, and we have found that while there is quite a bit of dialogue out there around entrepreneurship and sort of really focused around tech and who raised yeah. the next, you know, 15 Ten billion yeah, exactly. dollars. There's far less around people who are building small smaller businesses to begin with sometimes those become really big but really healthy operations not relying on equity financing to do that and uh yeah those are the people that we're really the most interested in talking to and getting into some of the details that hopefully are inspiring or helpful to other people going through similar things so that's a brief overview i love it i honestly that's why i was really excited to come on the show because i completely agree and i think as an entrepreneur you look at forbes and you look at inc and it's a little bit uh, deflating right? because you're like, wait, I didn't raise $14 billion. Yeah, dollars. Yeah. I'm not, my valuation is not as big as Snapchat's, uh-huh. but that's so inflated that it's not really reality of right. the everyday totally. business owner. And for so many of those people, I think that like raising equity has become the business model. Oh, totally. You know, so that it's such a strange thing that's happening. And, and I, I imagine that a lot of that We'll see who who is here to talk about it in whatever five I years. I completely so. agree. And I also feel like so many people think that that's the only way. And there's so many other people yeah. doing it not that way. Right. And that I feel like is the real, the actual hustle. It's like, no, you can't throw money at every problem. You actually have to figure it out. Yeah. Good luck with the actually figuring out part. Totally. Well, I think that's a great lead in. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to to start by talking a little bit about your upbringing and also... Um, I'm curious if you can talk about some of the lessons you learned about money in childhood that stuck with you. Yeah, definitely. So when I was fairly young, my parents got divorced and it sort of opened a huge opportunity in my life to learn and to take on way more things than I would have normally done if I think my dad was around. Um, so I was about nine when it happened and it went from, you know, everything being in its right place to like spinning plates, if you radio ahead. Um, and I, I think that what happened was I had this opportunity as a little kid seeing life sort of crumbling in front of me and being like, well, I can just sit here and let my parental figures figure it out. Or I can like dive in and do something about it, which I think is a sort of entrepreneurial spirit because I dove sure. in and did something about it. And so I was like, okay, well, I don't know how to cook, so I'm going to figure out how to cook uh, so that when my mom comes home from her 12-hour shifts as an RN, I can you know, have food for her. And then I started grocery shopping because I needed the food to go grocery shopping. So it was all very basic like ABC steps. But then when I would go grocery shopping, I needed an extension to the credit card because I couldn't just do it with cash anymore because I was buying a lot of groceries. So then I needed to go to the bank and get an extension. And I had to convince the, the people at the bank to give this young person a card that connected to my mother's entire financial structure. And so it just sort of 
kept happening like that. I had these opportunities and I was like, okay, I'm going to figure that out as a little kid. And, you know, next thing you know, I'm like paying all her bills. I'm doing all the grocery shopping. I'm taking care of my, my younger sister. Um, she had an apartment that we were renting out for, my mother did. And I, I was like, I'll rent the apartment for you. Just give me, give me the leasing papers and like, I'll figure it out. And she's like, well, I don't have leasing papers. And I was like, okay, well, I'll go to Office Depot. And I like bought the little generic leasing document. So I, I just started figuring out what money was and using all of my school, ex, you know, all the like problem solving actions that sure. they give you, but applying it in my real world. Were you like cognizant of... I don't know, like how responsible you were as a kid. I mean, did was were the people around you constantly talking about that? No, or? they weren't, which I think made it very normal for me. Mm. It it normalized the hell out of the situation. Right. It was just like my mom ex- almost came to expect it from me um, because I was just so involved and so into helping and figuring out what I could do to make things better. Do you feel like there are lessons that you learned about money as a kid that are applied to Headley and Bennett now? Oh, 100%. I think that as I was explaining to you that I wanted to make groceries, it was a very simple step. You could replace the groceries with your product that you're selling. I wanted to cook for my mother, but I needed food. So I backed it up. I like moved backwards. I was like, I need a, I need money. I need a card. I need a grocery store. I need to get there. And I just broke it down into very tangible actions and then executed on it. Mm. And business, however complicated it may seem, is comprised of a ton of little actions. And if you break them down and do them one by one, or sometimes 10 by one, or 20 at the same time, you can get to the grocery store, so right. to speak. Interesting. Um, so I, I just applied the same context to the way I ran my business or how I started it. It was very much like frugal, didn't spend more than I made, um, took deposits on everything, put every single penny back into the company, didn't take money until I could actually afford it. Like was very old school about Inter- it, yeah, cool. which I don't think is the regular way these days. Maybe not the way that's talked about, but yeah, perhaps for some of the people with the healthiest businesses. Before we get into it, though, tell me about how you end up in Mexico City. Um, it's 2000. And, I'm also just curious on a yeah. personal level how Mexico <laughs> City has changed. Um, it seems like the epicenter yeah, of, of amazingness. Yeah, yeah especially no. right now. And so I feel like in 2006, you must have caught, I'm sure that was already budding, but it, it hadn't become... Like, I would like to say I was ahead of, you were the, ahead of the curve. I was very ahead of the curve there. <laughs> so, but how do you how do you make the? Uh, I mean, your 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 mother is Mexican, right? Yeah. And so you had some connection to to the country. But how did you, at eighteen? I mean, at eighteen, I had the courage to leave New York City and go to Boston. But like, <laughs> and wow, that was courageous. Uh, I'm curious, like, yeah, it was a little ballsy. Yeah. Um, well, what happened was I had turned eighteen, and I was in LA surrounded by people that wanted to be actors and models and singers and everything Hollywood, which a lot of people associate LA with that. Not all of LA is that, but back then that was the LA that I was in. And I was like, this, this LA is not for me and I don't like it. And I don't like that people are sort of cold and hollow and fuck this. I'm leaving. And so I, I went to Mexico city for a month 
quote unquote. I'm okay. putting quotes in the air. I know this yeah. is a podcast. <laughs> um, but I got there and I was like, oh my God, the motherland. Like, this is amazing. Everyone's warm and friendly and welcoming and they kiss you and hug you. Yeah, this and they're is like, so beautiful. Sit too. down and eat. I'm going to feed you. Like, there's such love mm. and people are so alive and I love that yeah, yeah and I just I it resonated with me so I decided to figure it out and my parents were like what do you mean you're gonna figure it out you can't stay in Mexico you have to come home and I was <laughs> like no no I'm staying in Mexico yeah. and they're like we're gonna cut you off financially not that they were super supporting me financially but you know they were they paid for my airplane ticket right there, so to speak and so I was like I'm going to figure it out. So I went and got my Mexican citizenship, which was a pain in the I bet. ass. Oh my gosh. The it's bureaucracy like the around it times 80 <laughs> on steroids in a foreign sort of third world country. Uh, I mean, I, it took me like two and a half months. So of, you become a, you become a citizen. Yeah. Yeah. So I became a Mexican citizen. Then I signed up for taxes in Mexico, which is a huge deal <laughs> because it's somewhat almost optional in Mexico. I'm not even kidding. So I was probably the most excited person to have ever signed up for taxes. I was in the office being like, I did it. Here I am. And everyone's like, she's crazy. <laughs> um, so that was kind of where it began. And from there, I was like, I'm here. I'm going to figure this out. So I went, I studied restaurant management there at a culinary school. I got a million jobs to support myself and I just like learned how to hustle in Mexico, literally life hustles, like how to negotiate, how to talk to people, how to close deals, how to just get to places. What drew you to the, the restaurant world? Um, like do, in your family, is there anyone who is in that business or what, what was it about that life that, that kind of attracted you? Well, I love cooking. I love you know, since I was little going to the group, yeah. the local Ralph's, <laughs> um, I just loved seeing people's faces when you'd put something in front of them and they would just light up like a light bulb. Um, and it's very, you're very connected to that person when they're eating your food. And I think it's really special. And I love how community oriented food is. It brings people of anywhere together. Um, and I loved that. And I, you could say I didn't really have a necessarily together family. So there was something about food that I enjoyed hmm. bringing yeah. together in my own life. Um, and so from there, it was just like, okay, this is what I like. I like that. And I, I'm good at identifying what I like. And when something makes sense to me, I pursue it. I pursue it like the freaking devil's chasing me. <laughs> and I'm just persistent as hell. And so I just loved food. And I was like, I'm going to do something with food. Okay, here I go. And so while you're at culinary school, you're working on the side to yeah. support yourself. Yes. Very much. It was almost more not on the side. It was like culinary school was on the right. side and the supporting took up 80% of my What were some of, of those life. gigs? I mean, they're crazy jobs. I was the lottery announcer on Mexican television. No way. Yes. Like what were you the what Yes, you pull like out where the, you ball, the announce number? the balls. Yeah. Like that's, every day. That's incredible. Um, I was a simultaneous translator for the Mexican Railroad Union. I was a English like tutor. I was a booth babe. Like the girls that sell you stuff at trade shows, you know, they're like in a little suit and they're oh, like, this for is which canola oil. Uh, this is a bulletproof oh, vehicle. <laughs> I mean, like door to door salesman, but for like 
prettier women, you can oh, say. Oh, boy. Yeah, so a whole slew of different things. And each one of them back then, I thought, oh, my God, what am I doing with my life? Like, yeah. This is insane. But now I'm so grateful for all those ridiculous freelancer opportunities because, it, again, it just taught me how to, like, get up and find it when it's not just showing up on your doorstep, which you kind of... And somehow uh-huh. at, at some point in school, you sort of think that that's how it's going to be. And it yeah. really is not that way. And then in terms of multitasking, do you feel like that is really prevalent in your day-to-day now? I oh, mean- yeah. 100%. Always. In the kitchen, when I'm running around, when I'm doing meetings, I'm always doing like six things at once. Right. In fact, if I'm not doing six things at once and if there aren't 22 balls in the air, I'm like, what am I doing with my I life? I find that prioritization though is always so tricky and maybe this is something that you learned when you were yeah. younger, but I'm curious even to, to hear your thoughts on that. Like how do you, you can't do everything. Right. How do you kind of tactically think about what you know, you're gonna push to someone else or what just can't happen, even though right. it'd be great. I, okay, so when I started Headley and Bennett, I really quickly identified the things that I was good at and the things that I was not good at. And I'm like, okay, I'm really good at all things marketing, PR, design, and just like general communications department. And the things that I'm not super great at, like this is so dumb, but honestly, I'm not great at it. Answering emails. It's whatever. You're like, well, yeah, a lot of people are not good at answering emails, but when emails are 80% of the way that people communicate to you, mm. it's a problem. Sure. So one of the first things I did was if I can manage all these other departments of the company, but emails, which is such a dumb, silly, small component, but important. I was like, okay, I need to get an assistant for myself. Somebody that can help me come in and deal with that. And it went from me taking, you know, 45 minutes to answer an email because I would do 20 other things to procrastinate to do <laughs> for, instead of doing the email to... One minute if someone else was just doing it. I was like, wow, that's a huge time savings. So I just kept trying to find places where I could save time by putting someone else there. Right, and kind of honest with yourself about what you're good at. Right, and that's where I would delegate. Mm. Find the things you're really good at, strengthen the hell out of those, and then remove the things that you're not good at and delegate those off. But make sure that you know what that person is doing. Yeah. Understand what it is. Don't just like throw it off into the wind and be like, you deal with mm-hmm. it. That That's not functional either. So backing up still a tiny bit. Um, okay. How many years in Mexico? Four years. Wow. Okay. Three, or three and a half. Yeah. And then you, I'm going to move back to LA. I'm going to become a chef. What, what sort of talk me through so I did all how of those, you were thinking about yeah, your life at that point. I did all those jobs. I went to culinary school, graduated, did everything. Um, this is like a random fun fact, but I was even in the equivalent of the Mouseketeers for Mexico. So it's like for TV Azteca, they have a pool of talent. And anyway, what really struck a chord in me that meant I needed to leave Mexico was when I passed their like six month situation. You do like six months of classes. Okay. And then... You either what were you make doing? It, in the car? Are you, you singing, acting, oh my gosh. everything? Everything from like linguistics to um, what's this spade and dagger classes? I mean, because you were studying to be like a soap opera star, so it could be anything. It's basically like acting you, boot camp. Did you at one point think like? I mean, it I'm totally be, it totally crossed yeah. my mind. And the people that did stay in that program are famous soap opera stars now on television. But basically, are you in what touch happened, with any of them? On like Facebook. (laughs) But so you do this six month thing and then they say, great, like you either made it in or you didn't. And in my case, I did make it in and they say, okay, cool. Ten year contract. 
exclusive to us. Uh, you can't okay. work anywhere else. I was like 22 or something. Mm-hmm. And I thought, holy cow, that means I'm going to be here till I'm like 30 something. Yeah, That's it. insane. And I looked at my measly little culinary career and I thought, if I came to Mexico with nothing and I made this life for myself, I think I can go back to the U.S. and make something out of myself there. And that was a huge moment because I was doing really well when I left Mexico. I mean, I was making a significant amount of money for a 22 and a half year old girl who moved there with nothing. And I had a house and I had all these materialistic things that I decided were not important anymore and that I needed to pursue what I actually wanted to do, which was cooking. And so I sold, I sold all of it. And that was one of the coolest experiences I've ever had because it truly made it very clear to me that money is not the end all. Yeah. It is a tool. But embracing uncertainty is so challenging. It is. I guess also totally, (laughs) like, incredible. I think that's probably where some of the most exciting things happen, but... Oh, Always. Yeah. You, I, it's my, one of my favorite sayings is leap while looking like you got to leap out the window and you don't necessarily know where you're going to land, but you're going to figure it out on your yeah. way down. Um, but you can't just stand at the window forever or else life just sails you right sure. by. So I'm a big leaper. So you sell everything. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I sold everything, took that money. My dad was a pilot. So I said, let me have a buddy pass. And then I went and traveled like around the world for two and a half months, super backpacky style. It wasn't fancy. I just like stayed on people's what couches. What were some of the places? I was dying to go and climb. This is ridiculous. And I know it sounds totally insane, but I really wanted to climb Mount Fuji. So I went to Japan and I climbed wow, that Mount was stop Fuji. One. That was not step one. That was like stop 10 or something. So um, cool. And then I went all over Europe and England. I'm half English, Scotland, um, some parts of Asia, went to um, South America. Are you starting to realize your interest in design or even architecture or like, is, I, is that clear yet or? I actually realized that when I was like 14. Oh, okay. I, when my mom was gone, you know, for her huge 12 hour shifts at work. Yeah. Well, I didn't have very much to do besides cooking and do the bills and homework and watch like shitty TV because she refused to get us cable. Okay. <laughs> so my sister and I only had like seven channels. Yeah. And so I thought, okay. A lot well, of Jeopardy. A lot. So <laughs> much Jeopardy. Like Anne of Green Gables. I mean, it was bad. Um, and so I thought, what the hell am I going to do with my day? I need to do something. Like yeah. I clearly liked to be productive, even at a young age. So I started going to Home Depot and buying love the Home like, Depot. love Home Depot. That was what really struck a chord. I was like, oh my God, I love this place. You can build stuff and make things and use your imagination <laughs> and create the dreams. And so I started buying cans of paint and would paint different rooms in the house. Oh, interesting. So she'd come home and like I had, I always tell this story because I think it's sort of beyond ridiculous, but I sponge painted her bedroom yellow. When she was away. Well, yeah, and then she came home, and she was what like, the fuck did you do? no, you know what her reaction was like? She was like, this tiny little Mexican woman. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> and that was it, and then she went to bed, and I was like, I can do anything. <laughs> that's it awesome. just gave me so much, uh, I don't know, she gave me so much trust. I thought, so cool. I can literally do anything I want in the Got world. Got it. So at an early age, you were kind of like this, you were yeah. a doer, for lack of a better word. Totally a doer. Um, you travel for a long time, and and that's... You come back to California, and, and I guess you must have had a feeling of, like, now what? I mean, not square one, but... Uh, no, it was a, it felt that way a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I was back in my mother's house right. after having lived in yeah. a foreign country, right. like, 
killing it as a little was the yellow paint still young there lady the paint was not there because it was a new house but okay <laughs> um yeah no it was definitely backtracking and my friends were the same and sort of LA had stayed the same yeah but I had changed that's such an interesting thing yeah it was totally peculiar um and and when I got back I I sort of went out and got a slew of like bizarre just random jobs like I was a personal assistant slash nanny for a family and I also cooked for them so I was like three roles in one Uh which was good for my you know addiction to (laughs) multitasking um but then I just clearly knew I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do and I was sort of avoiding the white elephant of culinary land and so my friend one day gave me a list of the top 10 restaurants that I should cook at in L.A. And she's like, you just make a resume and go between 2 to 4 p.m. That's when there's a lull in the kitchen and you find the chef and you give it to him. And so I did that. And I just like was, it wasn't exactly a walk. It was more of a storm in. I like stormed into all these different restaurants. And what do you do? You go to the maitre d' and say, here's my resume. Or do you like beeline it for the kitchen? Oh, no, I like beelined it for the kitchen and found the chef because I was like, well, he's the guy that's going to hire me. I got better find him. And <laughs> this isn't necessarily the way you do it, I guess. You go to the sous chef or you write an email or you uh-huh. get somebody to introduce you. And I, I was so used to just having to hustle for what I wanted in Mexico and walking up to people and being like, hello, this is canola oil. And yeah. I was like, yeah. hello, this is me right i am am. here it's funny david chang the 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 chef uh he was on he was on the show and he was talking about with his gigs too when he was first getting started he would go and essentially kick down the door and as much as you want to say like write the email or go to the sous chef it's funny how sometimes these really successful people are like well that might be the right way this I'm is the bla- faster yeah, way. I'm blazing this in. is the faster way. And to be totally honest, you have to be a complete asshole to turn somebody away who has the balls to do that. I mean, it takes courage to stand up to someone and say, hello, I'm here yeah. and put yourself out right, there. Be vulnerable. Yeah. And so I, you know, I did okay, that. Okay, so ten resumes out. Yeah. And any then bites? I, yeah, I got two I I got uh into two kitchens. So I got into Baco Mercat and um, Providence. And those are for folks who aren't from L.A. Yes. So Providence is a two Michelin star restaurant, the best restaurant in Los Angeles, literally. Um, And Michael Simarusti is the chef there. And he's a legend. He's amazing. And he was the big moose standing in the middle of the room that I stormed up to to give my resume to. Um, And then the other restaurant is Joseph Centeno's, who's incredible and sort of a entrepreneur on steroids as well like he was always in the kitchen with paint splattered on him because he would be opening another restaurant and he'd be painting it you know he was just like hands in hands on everything so talk to me about working in a kitchen it sounds insane i mean (laughs) uh i mean yes yeah i'm just like you know it it is also totally romantic sounding and in a kind of unusual way but um and it sounds like the work component maybe didn't bring you down that much, but just talk, like, what yeah. were some of the high moments, the low moments? What was your day-to-day? Did any, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it was it was totally crazy. Um, it was very, so the first, you know, first real, real day I had in the kitchen was at Providence. And um, while I had gone to a culinary school, I studied restaurant management. So technically I knew squat about what I was doing, except yeah. for the fact that I had been, doing some personal chef work. And you were on the line. There. I was on the line. Um, and so, you know, I, I'll never forget. They gave me this uh, 
they gave me lemons that I needed to cut into these perfectly triangular little shapes that were, you know, T minus like half an inch. And they were so tiny and you had to make every single one perfect. And then you had to cryovac them in the liquid. And I didn't even know what a cryovac was. And then they'd point to the chinois and I didn't <laughs> know what a chinois was. I mean, I didn't know anything. And people are moving quick around oh you. Oh my God. God, it's like you're standing on the 101 freeway and you don't know how to drive. That's, <laughs> That's what it good. felt like. And the only thing I knew how to do was clean really well. Uh-huh. I mean, I knew how to cook, but not like these guys. I mean, yeah. these guys are soldiers of war in there. It's cool. yeah, incredible. And they're just blazing by you and everything's moving so quick. And and then at three every day, everyone stops what they're doing and scrubs the whole kitchen down. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh my God. So you made it through the first day. Did you get Yeah, so I like found a red bucket. Or? And I was like, this red bucket is my savior. The red bucket is what everybody uses in a kitchen to scrub down. It's your little red bucket with a sponge inside. And I thought, okay, there's nothing else I know how to do better than cleaning so I'm just gonna clean the shit out of this place and sweep every time I can and I could tell I'm, I'm very observant so I was just watching people and I could tell that anytime there was a lull they would find something to do or they would pick herbs or they would uh, go over to the trash can and dump it and so I just started copying what people were doing and I'd be like okay he just put an herb on that plate now I'm gonna do it okay and I did that through service and I did that while they were plating and I dove into the plating area which technically you don't do that while you're fresh in the kitchen you start you just watch for a long time and I was like okay I watched enough I know what they're doing I'm gonna dive in and help um and I think that they appreciated that because at this point I wasn't hired yet I the day that I went I thought it was gonna get a job and they're like we're not actually hiring right now but I had my pinky in the door and I thought well I'm not gonna leave Uh so I said can I just keep coming back and I'll work for free don't worry about paying me just like let me come and learn and they were like okay fine and so a week later, they were like, we'd like to hire you. So did you become very wrapped up in kind of this, the lifestyle? Um, did that become your new community, your new friends? Oh, yeah. Did you also, I mean, one of the things about chef life, too, is that while it's, there's the great and really, like, cool seeming components, also a lot of people, it can be a super unhealthy lifestyle. Did 100%. you find yourself, like, did you go from, I don't Healthy know, to unhealthy? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> no, you know what? I kept it together pretty well. Um, I will say lots of people, you know, like smoke pot, do drugs, whatever. In this kitchen, there wasn't a lot of that. Um, and I, I was never into that anyway, so I kind of just didn't. You were there to work. I was just like, I'm here to learn, and I'm really excited about it. And I'm just, I was soaking it up like a sponge. It was almost like my culinary school in uh-huh. a way. Um, so every day I was just beyond thrilled to be able to be there with these geniuses all day. Um, and mind you, getting my ass handed to me. I, I mean, bet, it was yeah. like not easy t- <laughs> when you don't know what a chinois is. And they're like, are you fucking kidding me? You know, it's like, ah. Um, but I pulled it together really quickly and they were so awesome and helpful. And what I love about Michael Simarusti is that he just, he'll teach anybody that is actually there to learn. And he, you know, our dishwasher became the fish cutting guy. Got it. And that's amazing for a restaurant of that caliber. And do you think that you kind of like as a manager now? Yes, I absolutely adapted that mentality of like, okay, if you got the chutzpah, I will teach you. Uh And And I'm constantly pushing people out of their comfort zones of what they think they can learn because I watched him do that every day. And sometimes it bites me in the ass. Sometimes it doesn't work and I push people further than they want to be pushed um to learn and and they just don't like it but i saw him push people 
so hard and have them crack, but in the right way. Uh-huh that I was like, this is amazing. You're yeah. like sculpting people's futures. You're teaching them things that they will never forget. I mean, I'll never forget the things that he taught me. So how many days a week in each restaurant? Three, three in each. One day off. Yeah. Sleeping. <laughs> exactly, sleeping. Well, truthfully, I was already, you know, working on my like little apron concept on the side. Yeah, so, so kind of how long into the, uh, to working in the restaurants did you start to think, or, or what kind of what what was your thought process? Were you starting to think about wanting to own your own business, or was it more that you were a hobbyist and wanting to do things in your free time? Like at that point, did you expect to see your? Did you see your trajectory as I want to work up and then be a sous chef and maybe become a head chef or open my own restaurant? Or so I really wanted to work in the restaurant world because I wanted to have my own restaurants. I wanted to have a taco empire. That was actually okay. what I wanted. I feel that. <laughs> um, instead I went into apron, apron empire land. Huh. But um, I definitely quickly realized that I did not want to own restaurants and that it was so unbelievably hard and that, you know, the margins were so small and I was just like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this is for me, but I knew that I loved food and I was trying to figure that out in my head, sort of subconsciously, like, where am I going to go? Because this was the dream and it's not the dream. So what do you do next? And I think as an entrepreneur, you have to pivot and you have to know when something's not right and turn and figure out that next move. And I think that that was a moment in my life where I decided I needed to figure out what that other thing was, but I didn't know what it was. But all these experiences I had had in my life that were a very unstraight line mm-hmm. led me to realize and to believe my myself enough that I, that I decided I would do this like chef wear apron situation. Got it. So you kind of, did you, did you have the idea before you kind of had the idea and then went out and made the first one essentially, or I had the idea was in the kitchen and then um and sorry but just yeah where does that idea come from i mean what the apron um well really was it was it, it was, was actually it, it was chef coats that i really wanted to do oh and, but interesting. they were like super complicated and and was it because they didn't look good or they didn't function well or both well, all of it. Mm. They were unfunctional. The only companies that existed were these giant monopolies, you know, that made everything overseas. Everything was made out of poly cotton, and I just couldn't wrap my head around how nothing else existed. I'm also an athlete, and so I run and I do triathlons and all kinds of stuff like that. And I, I couldn't understand like all those people have great uniforms, and you have Nike and Adidas and all these like fucking beautiful yeah, epic brands, brands totally. that mean more than just what the clothing is absolutely and i wanted to create that for the culinary world i was like i want to be the nike of the culinary got world. it i want to make something that will give people like dignity and pride in the kitchen if they're the line cook or they're the chef yeah. and um that's what really was like the push behind it i wanted to help people and i think i've always liked to help people like i wanted to help my mom i wanted mm. i wanted to help my household i wanted to help my kitchen um, so who's the first apron for then? Or how you kind of, you start researching, you realize that chef coats are way more complex. You kind of say, okay, we'll start with an apron. Yeah. So, so Joseph Centeno, who was my other chef, um, and he was so awesome and so polar opposite to Michael Simarusti. He was like hands in the pie all the time. So quiet, but brilliant. And, um, 
he was just like, hey, there's a girl. She's going to make us an apron, some aprons for the kitchen. You want to buy one? And I was like, oh, my God. Well, I was like, chef, I have an apron company now. I will make you those aprons. That. <laughs> Do you think it was important for, like, did that make it more real suddenly? Does it go from idea to real business? Fuck yeah. yes, it does. Yeah. And yet that's where the leaping comes in. Mm-hmm. I was like, yep, I will make you these aprons. What's this girl charging you? And how long is it going to take? And what's the turnaround? And blah, blah, blah. Right. And I just, and I mean, to this day, my sales reps don't particularly aim to close the deal right there in the moment without a design. And I closed him on the sale of these 40 aprons with no design in place, nothing. We closed on a price. We set a timeline for it. I didn't even have a pattern. And we were like, great, done. Do you know how to sew? No, I don't know how to sew. <laughs> I didn't know how to do any of what I had just signed up for, but I knew I could do it. Uh-huh. I just had all these life moments where I had been able to do something that didn't seem very doable. And I just, for whatever reason, knew that I could do this. So you get the first order done? What happens? So you I go got, downtown LA, you get fabric? Yeah, like- I like clocked out and ran out of there like a bat out of hell and was like, who do I know? Who do I call? And I started bartering dinners because, you know, technically I worked at two really fancy restaurants. So or, you'd cook for people in return for what? For a pattern. I cooked for another person and they made me the actual apron once I brought the pattern to him from my first meal that I had huh. cooked. And then I was talking to a bunch of people. I, obviously, as I said earlier, I'm half Mexican. So I was running around town, you know, speaking Spanish to people, trying to figure out, you know, where the hell do I do this? How do I do this? You just figure it out. And I'll say in this day and age there's so much at our fingertips mm-hmm. but there's also so much just by talking to people yeah um so that's so all. what was the can you describe the first 40 were they all the same they were all the sizes same. or like they were different they were all the same color different sizes honestly they were terrible compared huh. to our aprons now oh my god these aprons were so bad so it's not even like i was i had a fully baked idea or uh-huh. anything um they were denim with red trimming and red straps and while they looked great when you washed them all the straps shriveled up the corners were wrinkling i mean it was just it wasn't quite right and so my chef said bennett these aprons kind of suck like what are you gonna do about it and i was like shit he's my only client i better fix this so i took half the order back and I repaired them for him. And no I way. figured out the straps that we now have to this day with basically a gun to my head, right? My one and only client was pissed and he was my chef. I mean, like double-edged sword all the way through the gut. Yeah. And so I was like, oh shit, I gotta fix this. So we figured out the straps. We came up with brass hardware. We use webbing that lays flat, but the webbing is 100% cotton. So you can Pantone dye it to match the color of any restaurant that you work with. And so we did that, or You're I did scrambling. that. scrambling. <clears throat> scrambling on steroids because also I have two jobs yeah well really I had three because I was a personal chef in the morning so it was wow a little insane and my sewer was out in freaking the in Compton I mean it was not close by um so I would my mini cooper basically looked like the Joanne's fabric (laughs) um so I fixed those aprons I returned them back to him and then he was like okay these are good great thank you and then i was still in the kitchen wearing the aprons with my team cooking that's so, interesting though so I it was wonder... like a focus group yeah exactly and in so, real life and with myself you... in the focus group right that seems like it must have been so important not only for early oh, improvements but vital making them for the chefs i mean it's yeah. not just a design it's not no. just like a fashion thing no there it needs really to be that isn't function. yeah it's definitely not 
Can you? It's what are more some functional of the than that, fashionable, even if it's a fashionable. Product. Yeah. What are some of the things that really need to be functional about a true chef's apron, like that you might not one might not know. Right. So a lot of aprons you just have to untie to adjust. Uh huh. You don't have time to untie shit in a kitchen. That's insane. You need to actually adjust with hardware, and the only hardware that people use is plastic because it's way cheaper. And I was like, nope. We're going to use brass hardware. We're mm. going to use matte black hardware. We're going to make it look amazing. We're going to find something that lays flat, that doesn't wrinkle on your neck, that doesn't cut your neck. Um, because typically it's like shoelaces and it's on your neck, riding your neck all day. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, the fabric that people use, nobody used proper fabric. And I started sourcing beautiful stuff like Italian fabrics and Japanese denims and canvases and American fabrics and it's like a kitchen. You get good ingredients, you're going to get a way better product. So yeah. we always use premium ingredients and we're hand making them. And I mean, now it takes about 12 people to make one of our wow. aprons, which is insane for an apron. So where does client number two come from? Customer number two. <sighs> who was close? I don't remember who customer number two was because once I got that first one, I was so freaking inspired and excited. And But I you just... quit like your day job that next day? No, or? no, no. I kept my day job for almost two years into having Bennett. Wow. Yeah. Like a year and a half, which was quite How a long time. How were you time. financing upfront so production costs? Well, I took that first order and I had $300 of savings. So I took that out of my little bank account um, and I funded it with, with the deposit. So I took that, made it happen at the end when he paid me the other half. I went and paid the sewers and I just kind of did it like that. And you Was know, that hard to convince, like to... <clears throat> To make them believe that you were going to pay them or? I just convinced them. And the way that I convinced my chef to give me a job and the way that I convinced myself to do my mother's bills, I just was like, I can do this. Yeah. Please trust me. Right. And when I think when you have enough conviction to do something, you're excited about something, people get on the bandwagon and they trust you. And then it's up to you to follow through on it. And if you follow through on it enough times, more and more and more people trust you. And before you know it, you have an army of people behind you that are like cheering you on. So you, you, you did two years keeping your day job. Yes, I had to quit Baco um, with Joseph because it was getting too crazy. So it was only three days a week at Providence, was doing the personal chef thing, finally weaned, started to wean that off was going to do the farm. I was basically at the farmer's markets on Sundays selling Headley and Bennett and then going to Providence in the afternoon. So it was like an intense yeah. schedule. And then I was wheeling and dealing aprons at, you know, different events and talking to chefs and running around and going to every food festival I could get my hands on. How many patterns prints were you making at that time? Like three. So it was pretty low key. And I started the designs very conservatively. It was like black, red, green. But what's interesting is that has come to, I mean, that's such a, that's such a part of the, this, the, the business, or at least the way yeah. that it's perceived now, obviously yeah. we're, we're not in the same time, but you know, what were some of, what was like the core ethos of the, the business when, when you started it? I mean, in like super layman's terms, it was like, make something that's beautiful, functional, awesome, handmade in Los Angeles for chefs, by chefs, and do it well, do it quickly do it somewhat affordably and deliver it with like a hug and a smile mm. and make them feel special. 
because this is special and this is a collaboration. And every single order was a collaboration. It was like, what do you like? What do you not like? Which colors do you want to choose? What do you want to do this like? And then by the time the aprons got delivered, you were best friends with that person. So it was this beautiful, without me even really truly realizing it, we were building a community through these aprons. And then all the people that wore the aprons were connected to me. Yeah. And so then they knew me and it was just this Charlotte's web. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, like the early sales infrastructure. I mean, you talk about Nike um, and if you read Phil Knight's book. Oh, I read it all right. You know, it it's basically that. <laughs> well, but it, uh, what's, what's cool is that he is, I mean, he knew that they, they, they were going for the athletes, yep. you know, and um, for the runners and it would be great if people kind of, if there was this waterfall effect, but it, it needed to serve their purpose. And that's, that's who they were trying to recruit initially, who they really wanted in the products. Yep. And was that the same for chefs? I mean, were you going door to door trying to get the chef community in LA? Pretty much. Yeah. This was some serious guerrilla style hustling. It was like person by person, chef by chef, city by city, talking to people. And I honestly, I wish I could still do it, but now there's this whole infrastructure that yeah. exists and we have a whole slew of people that, that do it now with me, you know, as a business. But yeah, that's how it started. It was very much just like me selling the dream and making the dream happening. And I think that's really important as a business owner. You can't just say you're going to do something. You yeah. have to actually deliver and you have to actually deliver what you're going to say and then some uh -huh. because it's that then some that's the magic it's the special it's the thing that gets people to remember you and the thing that gets people to say i'll do that again i'll use that again because that was actually different like it it's never been very transactional it's like exciting and special so when did you get your first order outside of la where how did how did it come through is it like through word of mouth or did you have a website set up and someone called or uh, so cool hunting did a story on us okay and we had, the only thing I had was a Gmail account. And this was early, early Headley and Bennett, like two, three months in. Um, and then out of the blue, I had like 300 emails and everybody wanted an apron. And I had nothing. I didn't have the website. Um, so I built the website with my then boyfriend at the time. Um, we spent all night building it. And then in the morning, we had a Squarespace website. And that was how we got that going and same thing with the logo and same thing with the font and the business cards it's like you wish you have all your ducks in a row but yeah. rarely do you right and honestly if you're taking the time to get every damn duck in a row you're probably not going to start your business for five fucking years yeah. so like don't worry about the stupid business cards you can get them later like just focus on the top level shit yeah top level shit is your clients, your yep. customers, the turnaround time, the speed, the quality of the product. Like those are the things you need to be working on. So are you you're so you get these three hundred orders, are you boxing them up in your house? Is it still three designs at this point? Yeah, it, yeah, pretty much. But those three designs have lots of different colorways. Okay. And we don't actually have any inventory. So every time an order comes in It's made to order. It's made to order, which is insane because I didn't have any of the supplies. So I'd have to go to downtown. I'd have to order from the supplier. I'd have to drive to Compton, hand picking every single one every time. Like, we got a yellow apron order. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we immediately I gave everything names. So it was the fish stick. That okay, was the right. yellow apron. So I would drive to Compton, deliver my one yard of, ape, you know, my one yard of fabric, my one brass hardware and be like, this is the order for this week. And that guy, that um that sewer and i so you know he worked with me for about 
a year and um we went from making like one apron a week to i think by the time he basically quit because he couldn't handle the load of work that i was giving him it was like almost 200 aprons a week wow so he definitely was like oh my god and it was just still him and i so it was it was a lot I'm curious, like, one thing that you've done in your career that helped you succeed that very few other people do. One thing. Um, or a few, you know, some things. Or that, a handful. Yeah, but something that you think has really been important that you don't, you don't see as often from other folks. Um, I think from day one, I really put myself out there personally. Um, I had nothing but myself. So I thought, great. I'm here, I'm me, this is me, there's nothing else but this, so let's use that to the best of its abilities. So um, while I'm still our CEO, I'm also our brand ambassador. I'm also the one that runs around and like talks to people about it. I still, you know, if I, if I want to, if I need to, I, I'll get involved in sales projects. I'm also the designer, like I sort of jack of all trades in my role. Um, and I think a lot of people are that. That's not exclusive to me, but I really owned who I was. And in this space of chef land, there's not necessarily that many women. There's not necessarily that many women that are walking around in like little red dresses, you know? Um, and I just thought it's easier to just be myself than anything else. So just own the shit out of that. Mm. And I did. And And people resonated. It resonated with yeah. people because I wasn't, trying to put on a show that I wasn't. Um, Do you have a like system, a process, habit, framework that you've created for yourself to help accelerate your work or personal goals? Um, I do a lot of lists for days. There's, um, in my office, there's uh, cork boards and there's also, um, you know, what are these? Boards, whiteboards, yeah, giant whiteboards. There's papers, there's post-its everywhere. I like a lot of visual notes, and that's been the best way for me to organize my thoughts is on documents that are real in in tangible world. Mm. Um, I also have a part. I have an office that's a treehouse. So there's two wings. There's the actual office yeah. chunk. Can that's, you kind of describe it? I mean, it's so crazy looking. It's so cool. Can you describe it? Sure. A bit? And wh- when you got it, and. Uh... Yes, so there's so we have a 16,000 square foot factory in downtown. And when I got that factory, it was just a hollow shell basically. It had some office space but not really. It was a lot of open like hang, airport hangar type uh-huh. vibes. And it was super gross and awful and I didn't have a ton of money, so I thought, okay, instead of hiring a contractor, I'm going to build some tree houses. And I want to be in a tree house too. And I wanted it to feel very Willy Wonka and like uh-huh. if you can dream it, you can do it, you know, Walt Disney vibes. And so we built tree, these two tree houses. They're two stories. One of the tree houses is for our customer service team. The other tree house is where I work and my assistant works. And it's connected next to this chunk of the office that had an empty attic space, but there was a wall in between it. So we tore down the wall and made it an annex to the other tree house. And so now when you Are walk... Are people crawling around all day? I mean, you're going, like, I mean they're not like crawling. They're like, you can stand in okay. these tree houses. They're more like forts. Okay. You know, Fine. technically there's no tree, but it's literally what a tree house is outside, but inside. Um, and there's a slide, right? And there's a slide and there's a zip line and there's swings. <laughs> 
Yes. Um, so in part of the treehouse, it's my brainstorm area. So you walk in and it's an explosion of fabrics and trims and threads and ideations and boards and just little snippets from things because I'm sort of like, a, I go around like a, like a, I don't know, I'm just collecting nuts like nuts of life. I'm like, ooh, I like that. I like this. I like this. And mm-hmm. then I jam them all together and it makes some great thing. That's how I think. So I like to see all the nuts that I have on the wall and then I pick the nuts that I want. Are people manufacturing sewing in, the, in that? Yeah. Okay. So, so everything is still handmade in the US. Yes. Well, I'm actually half Mexican, um, as I told you. Yeah. Um, so we've, we've started working with a factory in Mexico too, which is very exciting because I've always wanted to support Mexico too. So we use one factory in Mexico, and then the rest of them are done in the U.S. Um, one thing that's been inter- like that seems interesting is that you, as someone who's clearly a doer, like you are towards a set of action. Um, one r- result of that is that you make a lot of mistakes, which is yeah. also super beneficial at times. Um, and I guess I'm curious, what's a mistake you see get made all of the time, even by very smart people? And what have you learned from that to handle it the right way? I think the biggest mistake I see in general with people and in, in even with my managers is lack of communication. Um, assumptions lead to so many miscommunications yeah. um, or lack of clarity. And so I, I always find even when shit is hitting the fan, if you communicate about it and really like put everything on the table people, it will fix. It mm-hmm. will get fixed. People will get fixed. The situation will get fixed and you'll find a resolution. So I think communication is kind of like the universal solution to most things. What are uh, like a money related mistake you've made that you've learned from? A money related mistake? That could uh, be like now or even at the early, early yeah. days of the business. Um, I guess you could say that, no, I wouldn't call this a mistake. Okay, so um, when we took on that factory, it was so big, so huge, that we had our sewing company go in on it with us. And I never really talk about this because this is the nitty-gritty, but this is what really happened. So we got this big factory. We split it with these guys um, that we'd been working with for quite some time. So we had a really good rapport. And... um, you know, after a year and a chunk of working together, I had just come back from this like grand sort of goodwill tour. So it was like I was on this high of holy cow, we're out in the world, yeah. spreading the love, spreading the goodwill, spreading aprons. And, and I come back and one of my employees gets served an eviction notice. And I'm just like, wait, what? What? Because I we've been OCD from day one of paying every single thing on time we just always do this is just something that i've always done we pay every credit card on time we pay every vendor every two weeks like we do not get into debt that's just not our style it's not our mo and so um this happened and i was just like my jaw dropped right Uh because we have this big great building now we poured all this money and heart and soul into it and we're about to get evicted and we've been paying our rent on time so it didn't make sense and then it turns out that they weren't paying the rent. Like we'd pay them our portion and then they would pay it and I they see. stopped paying it. 
So it was like this whole shit storm because the ship is sailing, right? You're in the ocean. Yeah. Business is functioning. Like things are happening. It's not like you just stop and get evicted. Yeah. Um, and we so were. So how'd you handle it? So I mean, what we, we like. We had to figure it the fuck out. Yeah. I mean, we you, like you, you, we lost we lost the entire deposit on the building because wow. they had to use that to fund the months that this guy had basically stolen, um, and we that was a huge blow. I mean, yeah. it's a huge building. It was a lot work with of that, money. That no, so what happened? And this is like another one of my favorite sayings is these are not bumps in the road. They are the road. Like mm. it's just inevitable. The road is bumpy. Like you just yeah. have to deal with it. Um, we wouldn't have been able to get that building in the first place without these guys. So I'll forever be grateful to them. But they ended up, you know, leaving. And then shortly thereafter, they had a building as well. They went, you know, they the building got closed too. So they like closed down their entire business like two months after that happened. And I had to convince like the landlord and a slew of people that we were at a point where we could hold this building on our own. And, you know, they basically had to trust us. And obviously we showed them our financials and stuff and we were in a much better place. But it was a lot of like back to square one when I was yeah. a little kid at Bank of America convincing somebody. I had to convince them to let us keep this building. And, and we kept it. And, we, and I signed the lease as the official full master leasee. And it was a big freaking deal. Yeah. I mean, it was a big freaking deal. Wow. And I was like, this fucking building is yeah this now. better work this better work because <laughs> we just signed the entire building and it did and it's working but every day and i never forget that because it's it's like that happens and it can happen any moment mm -hmm. any moment you can get an eviction notice and be kicked out of the building that you worked so hard to build when in uh, have there been any expenses in look now looking back that you think were kind of a waste um i mean losing our deposit was a huge Yeah, but waste. I mean, I, I guess, I guess, I mean, more like things that you you thought you needed to invest in as a business, and like that it didn't work. And, yes. and we signed that happens, up for you know? an ERP. What's um, that? ERP is basically like the brain of a business. It's this system that connects to your um, financial, like whatever you're using, whether it's QuickBooks or something, and your CRM and your shipping, and it is a hub for all these different platforms, and it tracks production and costs and your financials and your accounting but bigger businesses have it and yeah. we attempted to get into one pretty early on and it was a complete and utter shit storm and we spent so much money on it it didn't work and we had to basically call it a loss like mm -hmm. it was just gone like tens of thousands yeah. of dollars and it was such a freaking bummer uh, because you, we needed it so bad and it didn't work and we had researched it and the people seemed amazing and just sometimes yeah, it no, doesn't I mean, work and it sucked yeah because i was like preaching to the choir to my team about how magical this yep. was and then i went and fell flat on my face with it and now two years later we're at it again with a new erp system that we're about to implement and it's totally scary because, you know, you're telling your team, this one's going to work. Yeah, and you're me. like, I don't know if it's going to work. But From a growth but, standpoint, what do you think has been your most effective marketing channel? Well, B2B, definitely, business to business was 
was our first channel and it was our biggest channel and it was so exciting and were you and doing awesome the sales on us. that i yeah, mean and just yeah. calling into restaurants or yeah visiting restaurants and then i had people that started working with me and they started visiting restaurants and it just you know and came. that spread word of mouth yes, primarily. exactly i mean we didn't have a lot of marketing budget at the beginning so we just yeah it was us like again street by street chef by chef talking to people just in the real world yeah so that, that really helped. And we also have a little ampersand on our aprons. Um, it's a very simple, clean yeah, yeah, logo, but it. it's, you know, you recognize it. It's just it. enough. It's just, just enough. enough that you're like, oh. A small swoosh. That little, yeah, like you'll even see online people are, uh, they'll type in like ampersand, square, apron, uh-huh. trying to figure out who we are. And it will lead us, to, it will lead them to our website. But that was, that was really, um, that was really essential. And I always wanted it to be super low key. I didn't want it to be like Abercrombie and Fitch across yeah. the apron. Cause I thought nobody's going to, nobody's going to want to wear that. So that was kind of in the chef community or B2B, as you said, as it's, as I mean, what's the breakdown now of B2B versus consumer has consumer like totally taken over? Or? Consumer's a, a huge portion of it now, and how but we'll that... never lose the B2B. That's so vital. And right. It's like us. never losing the runners. Y- exactly. Yeah. You can't. Um, and I don't want to. It's like, that's where I came so from. So how did you, that consumer business start to grow? Well, people started seeing our aprons in their favorite restaurants and on their favorite chefs. And then we started outfitting most of the shows on the Food Network. And then we got onto, you know, all kinds of other shows. And then, you know, stylists started picking them for movies and next thing you know they were all out there in the world but people didn't actually know how to get them and it was a very culinary based niche world um but we started doing really cool collaborations with companies and so we worked with art we've we've worked with artists we've worked with photographers we've worked with all kinds of cool people to make stuff so that just put us out into the world even further than the culinary space and i like to say that we're like a bridge we're like a lifestyle bridge between the culinary and beyond. Um, and so all these other people were like, well, where the hell do I get this? So then they started buying them online. And it just, you know, we just kept hustling and kept finding great opportunities. So this year we're launching in Williams-Sonoma nationwide. Um, and we're also in Sur La Table, And we're also in Whole Foods, the Northeast region. And um, and we sell at Stephen Allen and Heat Ceramics. And, and you sell direct to consumer too. And we sell online as well. And in our showroom at the factory, people can walk in and get a tour of the space, get ice cream, and buy an apron if they want. How many styles do you have now? Oh, we have about like 50 styles. And how big is the team? We have a little under 30 people and then 20 sewers. Wow. Yeah. And kind of, how are you thinking about it now? And how has that changed from when you were still on the line cooking like having this side project of sorts. Right. Have you always had this enormous vision for it? Has it shifted over time? What is that vision? The vision was definitely really big. I mean, it was Nike of the culinary world. And I think that now it's more even focused towards workwear. It's not just the culinary world. It's people, it's the hustlers, the dreamers, the doers, the people that are out there like carving their own paths, like pioneering. And a lot of what we did was literally with a machete through the forest. Like this looks good. Let's turn right Right. and make a fucking path here. Okay, there it is. Um, And I want to outfit the people that are doing that in the world. I want to be the one to clothe those people because they deserve to have something that's going to make them look and feel fucking awesome how far and wide does that get though i mean i i agree but i mean it goes as like far what, have there been extensions today that w- are starting to demonstrate that totally so 
I don't know if you're familiar with the hundreds. They're like a sure, really yeah. rad streetwear company from LA. We did a collaboration with them together last year. On t-shirts? Or? Um, no, aprons. Okay. And killed it. Sold out in three days. Um, and it was amazing. And it was such a bizarre collaboration. You could almost say like, yeah. whoa, that's a little, that's interesting. But they love food. And all the people that- They're they, also in downtown, right? I, yeah. Yeah. Their space is like five minutes from ours. Yeah. So that was a really amazing, eye-opening experience to me. But I guess, do you have the intention of getting out of the food world and outfitting people outside of the food uh, world? Yeah. Wow. Well, so this year we have so many other products in the pipeline. So we launched a bag that's a knife bag, which is, you could say culinary focused, but it's very utilitarian. So a lot of our products are just functional. Um, we have work shirts too that are really beautiful, but you can beat the shit out of them and they will stand up to it. Um, we have obviously our chef coats and we're working on chef pants. We also have jumpsuits in the pipeline. We have other bags. We have this really sick bag called the Go Bag. And it's like duffel meets lunchbox meets uh-huh. like tool kit. Um, and it's your go bag. So basically everything in the utilitarian vein, the the jumpsuit that we're working on is with Topo Designs yeah, wow. from Colorado. Um, and so we just have all these different things coming up. And then the hundreds, we're doing another collaboration with them. And it's a five piece collection launching in November that includes work coats and a bunch of other products that have nothing to do with aprons. Have you still not taken any outside financing for the business? No. Wow. So you own 100% of the business. Yeah. That is fucking crazy. Really <laughs> inspiring. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Um, we like to kind of finish, and I'm going to put you on the spot, so apologies in advance. All right. But, tell me. Um, what are your three favorite independent businesses in LA as a starting point, and why do you think it's important to support independent business? Okay. Um, love PF Candle Co., they are a tiny. They were they were a tiny little candle company. You've totally seen them. They're in these glass brown jars. They sell them freaking everywhere, and it okay. has like typewriter font on the outside. They sell them everywhere from J. Crew to Madewell to Nordstrom, and they're freaking everywhere. But she started just at a like craft show, one one candle at a time, and grew this freaking business to what it is today. And it's huge, and it's amazing, and it's very inspiring to take something that's an arts and crafts type business and to scale it. That's really challenging because it's so handmade focused and she's been able to do it. And since I, I think we did the same challenge, like we scaled handmade. I really admire that she did that. So that's one of my favorites. Um, there's this huge group called unique LA and it's an American marketplace for people that are making things and it's such an amazing platform and I used it when I first started Headley and Bennett and it's a show that they put on like four times a year and it's just all these makers where is it gathering in LA and they do one in San Francisco too but in downtown LA or yeah in downtown LA and it's so rad it's like 250 makers and they all get together and thousands of people come and it's such an amazing platform for people that are just starting because, you know, you pay 300 bucks or whatever it is. You have to get accepted and then you get in. And I love her. I love that she does that. And then she has a co-work building. 
that she also created. So she's creating these world, this like world for herself. Um, so I love that world. And I also really love John and Vinny's. So they're in, more in the restaurant space. But I think that what they've done is also create a world. And I think if you can figure out how to make the world that represents you and it's an extension of you, people will buy into that because it's real. You can't fake yourself. And what they've done is created all these, you know, offshoot businesses and restaurants and they've done collaborations with vans and they're just like so brilliant. They're so intelligent, but they're also themselves uh-huh. and they're not faking it. You know, Vinny shows up in a white t-shirt and like a dirty pair of vans to an interview. That's him. Yeah. I show up in my little kid dresses and uh-huh. that's me. You know, that's like, you just own yourself and do it. And why do you think it's important to support independent business? I think it's vital because we're in this together and the tide rises together. And there's been so many opportunities for myself to be able to do stuff with other businesses in LA. And the more we link arms, the more, I don't know, the more progress we, I feel like we make. I have, not even kidding, four different small business groups that I'm a part of in LA where we get together once a month to talk nitty gritty yeah and we sit down and we're like okay what's happening with workers comp how are you doing this what's the way that you manage that and it's that community of other business owners that keeps me afloat and keeps me going because i have somebody to turn to and say hey how do you do this because business ownership is lonely as fuck yeah (laughs) thank you so much for coming in it was really really enjoyable to chat with you thank you thanks for having me this was awesome